Welcome to the first episode of the Gym Class Strength Podcast, a podcast about American physical education, and specifically about updating the way we think about the subject so it can be more relevant and useful for our students. We also hope that it can be a place that can act as a launching pad for both increased physical capacity and performance and healthy lifestyles. Our first guest is Jeff Coover. Jeff is an assistant track and field coach at the University of Northern Iowa, specializing in jumps and multi-events. He himself is a 14-time qualifier for the U.S. National Championships in the pole vault and has been ranked in the top 10 nationally in the event in eight of his years competing post-collegiately. As an undergrad at Indiana University, Jeff was a four-time All-American and was a Big Ten champion in 2009. He worked as a volunteer assistant coach at the Division I level for seven years, two at Indiana and then five at Northern Iowa, and he has been a full-time assistant coach for the UNI program for the past three years. We're really fortunate to have Jeff on. He's really a wealth of knowledge with regard to sprint mechanics, sprint development, and elite power output in terms of the horizontal and vertical jumpers that he coaches. A quick note about the recording of this podcast, there are some issues where connectivity led to some lag time in the audio. Not a huge deal, especially in this time of quarantine where a lot of us are on these Zoom calls and are familiar um, with similar lag times, but it does sound like we are talking over each other at certain points. Just bear with us. Uh, We do get uh, into some really good topics. If you're a middle school or high school coach, really hope that Jeff's knowledge at the elite level can help you think more critically about your coaching and teaching. So thanks again. Welcome to Gym Class Strength. Jeff, uh, thanks for being on the first episode of Gym Class Strength. Uh, Yeah, good to be here. uh, That was quite a list of accolades. I'm not sure that any of them qualify me to speak about um, gym class, but I hope that I can give some sort of... um, information that's helpful in some way (laughs) yeah so that's actually a good segue so one of the goals that we have for gym class strength is looking at pe with a sort of a 360 degree lens so looking at what happens before kids get to us what happens after they leave um, and then using some of the stuff um, that are that's happening at the highest levels to inform what we're doing at the high school level um, and even below so yeah that's actually a perfect segue and i'm uh thankful that you're willing to come on and share your experience at the division one level. So really quickly, can you give us a quick uh, background into how you got into coaching? How I got into coaching? Uh, Yeah, I guess um, it it was, so I graduated college and I wanted to keep training and try for um, the Olympic trials in 12 and 16. So I was pretty much committed in like 2011. I was like pretty much committed that I wanted to go and train through 2016, no matter what happened. And, um, and in order to do that at Indiana, I had, um, go through, jump through a couple of loopholes to become a volunteer assistant coach, um, so that I could train basically at the same time as the college kids, um, per NCAA rules. And so I kind of started volunteer coaching and myself and my coach from college, Jake Wiseman, who's still at Indiana, Um, We're always really close, and he gave me a good amount of freedom to kind of help um, pretty extensively with with the pole vaulters um, in that those first couple of years. And I really enjoyed it and loved it. And um, I mean, I guess I kind of always, you know, Jake and I always had that relationship where we were kind of trying to figure things out together. Jake was a young coach, and I was, you know. Um, in college and we were just we 
trial and errored everything together. So, um, you know, it was kind of like I was a little bit um, helping with the group even when I was in college. And then um, and then afterward in the volunteer assistant role, it kind of became clear, like, this is maybe what I want to do. So and then when I got to UNI, then then things got a little bit more serious. I had kind of autom- autonomy over the, the pole vault group. And then I got my, uh, my assistant, my, my full-time job a couple of years ago. So that's pretty much how it went. All right. So right into it as a coach. Now, um, I know this about you, um, that you're sort of a student of the sport. Um, so one thing that I would be interested in, in your observations of kids over the last decade or so, when you get a new athlete, um, what indicators are you looking for in terms of health, fitness, durability, um, and in track and field, does performance indicate that sort of base level of physicality for you? Like, in other words, if a kid is able to do X, then they must be um, healthy enough to be durable. Or are there other metrics that you look for in terms of resilience? Or are you coaching with your eyes, to, to borrow a phrase from Vince Anderson? Right. What, what's kind of your approach there? Uh, yeah, actually, almost almost zero. To me, almost, almost no... Um, relationship between uh i guess uh proficiency at the high school level or or i guess results at the high school level and uh health you know what, what you would consider to be like general health markers or um you know signs that a kid can you know uh have a, a high work capacity and not get injured and stuff i would i wouldn't say it's an inverse relationship at all but at the same time I, 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 when I get a kid that has really good high school PRs, I d- definitely do not assume that their work capacity is high or that they are um, going to be less injury prone or anything like that. Um, some of my, some of my biggest workhorses have been kids that don't perform particularly well in high school and, and don't perform particularly well in college either compared to, you know, the conference and national level or whatever, but, do pretty well considering their, um, you know, their uh, genetics and what their limitation factors are. So I would say that there is, uh, in my experience, there's not a crazy high um, relationship, uh, strong relationship between performance at the high school level and, uh, you know, like really good quality movement patterns and stuff like that that indicate um, future health, I guess. Okay, so... We know that the ability to train is required to perform. So what steps then do you take to ensure that kids can handle a Division One workload um, if they're coming to you with sort of unknown capabilities, uh, you know, when they get on campus? Um, yeah, so we. this is what I've, ref- I've referenced this already um, but this is what we refer to as work capacity. So um, the ability to kind of stack uh, to stack apl- applicable training uh, on top of itself in in a pretty um, pretty dense manner, I guess. And in order to do that, for for me, it's it's all about um, sort of starting starting not super dense and not with a lot of volume and, and seeing how they handle it and then kind of uh, trial and error from there. Um, we, we train in a way that's 
fairly similar the first week of training and the 20th week of training. It's not like crazy, crazy differences. For example, we're not coming in on day one, um, you know, with a, with a long jumper and running 300s and 400s. And then on week 20, we're running 20s and 30s. Um, the thing that changes for us is the density and the volume. So whereas the first week of training, we might do two times the first day of training, we might do two sets of 10, 20, 30, and then I'll kind of see how that last 30 looks and see how their, um, you know, their little hop series or whatever afterward looks and if they're kind of falling apart and breaking down. And then, um, you know, by week 20, we might be able to do four or five sets of 10, 20, 30, and the fourth or fifth set is just as good as the first or second set. So it's really all about building work capacity for us, and it's that's a slow um, and steady procedure, but at the same time, um, it's not dependent in, in our model, in, in my model. And, you know, it's not, not dependent on, uh, like a base or endurance or anything like that. Um, when I get a kid for the first, first week of NCAA division one training of their life, uh, my goal is to throw something at them that looks like what they're going to do the first week their senior fifth year senior year but with a little bit less volume a little less density um you know not quite as much demand on shapes and angles and stuff like that and just kind of see what their work capacity is from the very beginning yeah you're, you're and, bringing up uh, a little kind of go there, from there i, I don't know if that really answers I your question i definitely got the gist so um yeah th- that's actually a really good segue um, into my next question, which is if you could briefly outline your training philosophy in terms of uh, the jumps and the multi-events, because I do think that for a high school coach, it would be sort of shockingly low volume, probably, um, if they were going to guess what you're doing. Yeah, pro- it probably would. Um, it depends what you're talking about with when you say volume. Um, so the volume of, of max velocity sprinting and of, uh, you know, specific skill adaption is very high in our, in our model, the volume of junky kind of base type running and circuits and stuff like that is, is very low. So, um, you know, I, I, I make, I make the reference to uh, like a tennis serve. I think it's, I think a tennis serve or a golf swing are a good, uh, it, it's a good analogy to make. It's like when, when we're talking about multi-event athletes and jumpers, um, there are, you know, if you, let's just talk about sprinting, just about max velocity sprinting, not even, let's get a acceleration out of the way and jumping out of the way and all that. Max velocity sprinting is one of the most, neurologically demanding and physiologically demanding things you can do. Uh, it takes a, a, a huge amount of coordination and strength and uh, power and uh, understanding of the movement pattern and all that. Um, and it has to be practiced a lot. So going back to the tennis serve or the golf swing, it's like, you know, um, a, a tennis player has the ability because of the demands of the tennis swing, they have the ability to go out and practice their serve. Let's say they can hit a hundred serves four days a week, 50 weeks in a year, 48 weeks of the year. Um, you know, 
by week 48, they're still not perfect. You know, they're still working on their serve. And for us, uh, we're working on skill also. When, when sprinting upright and sprinting at max velocity, we're trying to hit, you know, uh, proficient shapes and helpful shapes and learn new movement patterns and change timing triggers and at the same time rewire the, the hard, you know, physiological components that are, are necessary for sprinting. But we can't hit the equivalent of 100 serves a day. We can, you know, we can maybe run max velocity over the course of 45 minutes, like six or eight times, you know. So um, <clears throat> we just don't get a, a, as many reps as somebody like a tennis player or a, or a golfer does. And so we have to do it a lot. Um, and that's kind of that's the basis for, for our training is like we need to live in that zone of of adaptation and uh, trans transferable practice and not live in the zone of worrying about things that are not going to transfer. So to, to get into the weeds a bit more, it's like, you know, for a jumper uh, in the fall, like I said, we might do, you know, two days a week, we might do acceleration runs. So somewhere between nine and 12 runs over 10 to 30 meters. So maybe four set, three sets of, 10, 20, 30, um, with a couple minutes rest between each run. Uh, we might do one day a week of max velocity sprinting. So upright, whether we're, you know, running for a prescribed distance or, uh, doing like a, a fly zone or running over wickets, um, maybe six or six or seven, eh, maybe like four or five or six runs in the fall, somewhere in the 50 to 60 meter range. Um, where you get to be upright and, and rehearse and practice that upright mechanic, upright mechanics. And then we might do one day a week of uh, what we refer to as speed endurance, which would not be what a lot of people would refer to as speed endurance. So for a, for a, a, a college long jumper, like I've had a bunch of like 24 foot guys and I don't think I've ever, um, I don't think I've had any of them go over 120. Uh, maybe we've done one session of 150s in the fall with with one group or two, um, but when we do speed endurance, it's pretty pretty serious. So we'll we'll do like six, maybe eight runs at the most with big rests. So six to ten to twelve to fifteen minutes rest. By the time we get to the winter, it's really more like two to three runs with ten to twelve minutes rest. Uh, usually eighty between eighty and one hundred and ten meters. Um, yeah. And then we lift a few times a week, you know, but, um, that's pretty much it. I, it's, that's kind of the, the, uh, you know, the idea behind it all. And also, um, some of the, sure. I guess some of the numbers no, that, no, yeah, that, helps that a lot. we do. I don't um, know. If, so um, I want to jump into the PE yeah. stuff, uh, or let's say physical education stuff, but first, uh, just cause we're on the topic and I'm yeah. curious. Um, that's going to sound sacrilegious to a lot of, let's say high school football coaches, high school volleyball coaches. Um, so I guess my question would be, uh, you know, from my perspective, I'd say it'd be virtually impossible for a high school running back to run more than a hundred yards in a given play, right? Theoretically, let's say a hundred and I don't know, 150, maybe if you're going back and forth across the field. And yet you see a lot of these high school teams running, um, you know, conditioning workouts that are. 20, 30 minutes long. Um, I think based on what you've laid out, you can kind of see some of the, some of the errors they're making. Um, but what are they giving up 
when you know i think right. i think their argument might be that we're getting our kids conditioned so that we can be you know fast and sharp come playoff time something like that where where is their logic faulty um when when they sort of bring that attitude uh let's let's use team sports as an example yeah uh i mean i think that the the main thing is um this sort of the sort of idea that if you that you know there's this common idea that if you train speed too early or something like that um you know you're gonna like peak or something um and then not be not be fast or in shape or whatever it might be uh near the end of the year and i think that that idea is definitely dying slowly uh especially at the collegiate and and professional level where you know um trainers and coaches are looking at the looking at the data and looking at the the research and seeing that um the guys that train for speed and and are are a little bit more specific are having really good success but um i would say i would say where they're losing out is just um on the ability to have their players be uh, as prepared as possible on every play. So I don't think you're giving by training um, the way, the way that, that I, you know, I think that the football players who train, which should be similar to a sprinter. I think, I don't think that you're giving up. um, You're giving up on the ability to play a 60 minute long game where you have, you know, you mentioned a running back. I don't know how many, how many carries a running back has in a game, but um, you, you, if you have a, if you have a 35 or 50 yard run in a game, that's right. Right. Almost an outlier. You know, most of the, most of the, most of the efforts that they're, they're giving are in the two to six second range, very similar to a a field event athlete. And, um, the volume demands are, are similar as well. And I think that the, to answer your question, um, when, when they do all of the endurance type training, moving slow for extended periods of time, um, you're, you're spending time, um, on something that in my, in my, in my opinion is never transferable. So a running back is almost never, if ever right. running below like 90% total effort. Right. And so it's like if a, if a 400 meter runner were to go out and, you know, go for 30 minute jogs, like you just don't see it happen because that's not transferable to their right. event. They want to go out and run fast and get faster and, um, you know, spend, spend the time sure. uh, working on something that's, that's transferable. So, um, yeah, I, I think that's that the, the, the thing that they're, they're missing out on is, you know, maybe a, maybe a 2% increase in speed and power on every play, um, by, by doing this endurance training and, and spending the time doing that rather than working acceleration, yeah. working max and I, velocity, and I guess just to um, add my getting quality sense, work in, um, I would guess, you know, you know, my argument would be that any day that you're spending, yeah. You know, making your athletes tired is a day that they're not learning how to how to run fast. And I think more and more we are understanding that sprinting is a skill. Right. Um, sprinting is not something 
that you just do because you're inherently fast, which was the thinking for, um, for a lot of years and is still the thinking um, from way too many coaches um, that I talked to sort of at the middle school, high school level. You know, uh, there's certainly a genetic component to it, uh, but, but those elite sprinters are spending a lot of time improving, uh, you know, the movement quality rather than just getting conditioned. So anyway, that's, yeah. Yeah. And you're, st- you're starting to see it in the NFL. You're starting to see it a lot in, in NCAA. And then I think it's going to come down to high school with the club level and stuff like that uh, in the off season as well. But um, yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. Um, you know, you're going to, you, you're going to spend your time doing one thing or the other. I would, I would rather you work on something that, sure. All right, so um, actually this is, uh, is this useful and helpful. The meat and potatoes uh, of my questions, uh, you know, all that is, is, is really good background for understanding, um, you know, sort of my philosophy around uh, physical health and physical education. If we use sort of the NASCAR IndyCar model where those cars are going 200 miles an hour and they're learning things um, that then make our cars safer, that's sort of how I think about physical education. We should be looking at what the best performers are doing um, and I certainly think that all of, all of our kids, whether they play formal sports or not, uh, you know, deserve to, to reap the benefit of, of that knowledge. So, you know, you touched on some of the stuff that you're seeing um, that I am not seeing at the high school level. So hopefully we can bring some of that down. And I guess it is a long way to ask this question, but you and I have talked before and you said you're going to continue to train in sort of a similar way, even when you're not competing. You are still competing, but um, even as a, you know, sort of just a you know, father um, you, you'd like to keep going with this model. So what health indicators or metrics are you seeing that convince you that training speed and power are giving you what you want just to lead your everyday life? Well, that's, that's uh, a loaded question. And I, the one thing that I want to do more of um, that I haven't done a ton of is like a lot of blood work while I'm, training and not training um which i think would give me a real really good idea of exactly what's going on uh but i kind of all i have is like more anecdotal type evidence of the fact that i feel really good i um you know my physiology is really good and uh i am fun to be around when i am doing a lot of uh explosive type training uh, you know, Olympic weightlifting, speed work, acceleration, you know, um, it's, it's funny. I'm, you know, I, I, I train pretty hard and I, like you said, I'm still competing. So I take everything pretty serious, like with my diet and everything like that. But, um, like I had somebody randomly stop me on the track the other day I was sprinting and this guy was like, Hey, uh, you know, he's like sludging around the track, like jogging around the track. I'm hoping he doesn't find this podcast, but maybe he will. But he's like jogging around the track in lane one. And he stopped me and he's like, hey, what do you what's your uh, what's your ab routine? Like, what do you do for your for your abs? Because I see that you have like, you know, like strong abs. And I was like, dude, literally, I sprint and I Olympic lift. Like, that's 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 all I do. And I makes me feel good. And it makes me feel like my core is strong. And like I said, it keeps my physiology, you know, kind of where I, I want it and all that. So, um, and then there's, of course, there's the like hormonal effect that's been really well studied in, in power athletes and, and training for, 
um, you know, Olympic lifting and sprinting. And I think that, um, you know, from, from a hormonal standpoint, there's a really, really strong argument for training that way, even if you're not doing a sport or whatever. So, um, all, I, like I said, all I have is anecdotal evidence of my own feeling and also what my wife says. And when I take a few weeks off, I'm notably in a worse mood. I feel like, uh, you know, like I feel like I, I lose muscle, I gain fat, even if I'm doing, you know, going to the gym and doing like elliptical or something like something non-demanding or you know, like an extended swim workout or going for jogs or whatever. It's like, I just don't feel as good. I'm not as fun to be around. And um, I feel like my, my uh, body composition just kind of goes downhill. So that's kind of my reason that I've decided when I retire from pole vaulting, um, I'm just going to kind of keep doing the same thing because um, it's what makes it's what makes me feel the best and, and people that I've suggested try it. You know, I have friends that like to go out and go on long bike rides or go on long jogs. And I've told them like, Hey, you know, why don't you just try like jog down up and down the block a few times, like do a little bit of skipping and then run up a hill that you can find, like run, run five second long hill bursts 12 times and walk down in between. And it makes them feel like, I feel like sure. everybody should go and sprint every once in a while. And they, they come back and they're like, that was more fun. That was like enjoyable. I really liked doing that workout and it made me feel like I was, you know, doing something explosive and made me feel like I was really working hard. And, um, you know, I, I, I think that this real argument, um, and then you can go, you can go on, you know, like PubMed and just search, or real, you know, real studies on the, you know, the, this, the physio actual physiological benefits of, um, you know, sort of more Olympic lifting based. And, um, I don't know what really, what to, how to qualify what the, yeah. the type of training that I'm talking I, I about, but think I think everybody knows what I'm saying. Study is um, super important though, because, um, uh, you know, if you're paying attention to your body, your emotions, um, then you're going to get the feedback that you need. And I feel like so many people are slogging through really right. long workouts. Um, and, you know, just to add, not to hijack the conversation, but to add my own anecdotal evidence, yeah. you know, I came from the distance running background and that was, you know, honestly probably where my aptitude was in terms of, you know, where I could be most competitive. But as soon as I switched over to um, Olympic lifting and right. sprinting as my primary sort of exercise, if you will, um, yeah, my mood increased, uh, or my mood improved, my body composition improved. Um, I felt like I sort of like got rid of that brain fog. And to this day, like if I feel myself like really in a rut, a lot of times what I'll do is swap out, like maybe, you know, a kettlebell workout or something that I'm doing during this quarantine. And I'll just find the heavy barbell, right. And we do three sets of three really heavy back squats. And all of a sudden for the rest of the day, I'm walking around, like nothing can bother me. So um, yeah, it works, works for you, works for me. Um, and I guess, you know, my next question would be what are coaches, um, you know, let me rephrase a lot of coaches are using fatigue as an indicator of a good workout. So, you know, how tired are my kids? Um, especially physical education teachers, I, I would say in my experience, even the yeah. well-intentioned ones are saying like, well, if they're sweating and they're tired, then we succeeded. Um, 
and that's a very easy way to measure you know yeah. workout um because right in front of your face but is there a better way Yeah, I mean, I think that, um, I, I mean, objective is a huge, a huge thing. So obviously for a track coach, um, objective becomes really easy. So jump further, jump higher, run faster, whatever. But, you know, I think you have to establish an objective and you have to establish an objective that's, that's useful. So, you know, in, in physical education, it might be, um, you know, learning skills that, make it so that when you leave high school, you are better equipped to, to know how to treat your body, you know, so that you can live long and prosper or whatever. Um, I don't think that doing workouts until you're laying on the ground helps that objective or, or helps you achieve that objective. Um, actually, I don't think it really probably helps you achieve almost any objective. Um, and, and also the, 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 you know, like you said, it's right. That, that, that outcome is right in front of your face. And it's also, it's hard because it sounds like hyperbole, but it's like, there is not an easier objective to obtain as a coach. It's, it's, that's the easiest possible thing you can do is to write a workout that's impossible to do. And yeah, I mean, the example I always give is, you know, if I tell you to do five burpees, um, that doesn't make me a good coach, but it will, it will make you tired. Yeah. It will, you can probably not do it. And, uh, like no, like anybody can't do it and, or, you know, go run like 10, two hundreds with 20 seconds rest and you have to run every second, single one as fast as you can. Yeah. Like you're going to pass out, you're going to throw up whatever, but did you achieve, did you, did you, did you achieve any objective? My argument would be no, you didn't, you know, it, we talk a lot about the minimum effective dose. In, in other words, giving somebody the, the workout that is effective, but doesn't go over the top ever. So for, for me, actually, you know, um, if I, there, there is a, there is a component of a, a cultural component of training track and field where here and there, you got to get the whole team together. You got to work really hard as a unit and, and everybody's got to get tired because then the whole group feels like, everybody's taking a step forward as a group. I do believe in that. Now, don't get me wrong. I, I do believe in that. But at the same time, 99 days out of 100, if at the end of the workout I see half of my group laying on the ground in a pile of sweat, I think I failed as a coach. I gave them, I gave them too much. If, if they can crawl off the track, um, there, was, there was too much volume. It was too dense. It followed a hard workout too closely. Something went wrong where they didn't get. Right. So, as yeah, much so out of I think that one thing that gets lost in this is, so, we, you know, look at some of the ways that the elite athletes train. Um, and just to be like really blunt, their body composition is excellent. So, you look at what the best, you know, the fastest eight guys look like who are running the 100 meter final at the Olympic Games. And everybody wants to look like that, but they understand that they're not. Um, that they're not athletes anymore. So they, there's this weird misconception where they think they have to train uh, differently than those guys, A, which we've kind of touched on, but B, it really is a motivation for a lot of people to look a certain way. So, you know, there's a lot of problems with that, obviously, and not something that I think somebody should be 
necessarily focused on. Um, you know, I'm much more uh, encouraging if people are looking at performance metrics. However, you know, just being that it, as it is, right. people are concerned with body composition. Can you talk a little bit about how um, your philosophy on that changes? Because I imagine some people would have listened to what you just said and said, well, I'm still going to do the, you know, laying in my own sweat workout because I'm trying to, you know, look, look shredded or lose weight or whatever the case may be. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I do think that that's like um, a, a big problem uh, with the workout community and the exercise community is the, um, the idea of like earning, um, you know, earning food or whatever. I think this goes into a, uh, a discussion that probably should be had with like a nutrition expert that I'm sure is going to be on your podcast at some point soon. But um, no, I, I, I think that it's a, I think it's really harmful, but it's very common um, for people to believe that they need to work out to the point of complete exhaustion um, in, in order to eat their dinner so that they look good. Like, uh, I promise that those guys on the 100-meter starting line haven't done anything uh, that exhaustive in the 12, le- 12 or 16 weeks leading up to the big race. Right. Uh, as you can go and do in your gym right now. So, um, you know, those guys are building, building body comp and physiology with less than 30 meter runs, seventies, eighties, nineties and Olympic lifting. And, you know, m- maybe a little bit of hypertrophy in the, in the beginning of the training season, meaning, uh, you know, bodybuilding type lifting. So, you know, reps of eight to 12, if, if their coach thinks that, you know, a little bit of bulking up is, is a good move. So, but, but again, like I've watched the best people in the world train, um, you know, as far as multis and, and jumpers go. And, uh, I promise that I see people go out to the track at UNI, uh, you know, by themselves with their iPod in and work into a more exhaustive state regularly than, the best athletes in the world and have a much worse, uh, you know, I guess like must wor- right. much worse human physiology from like a vanity standpoint than those guys. And I think that, you know, I think that uh, like I, my wife, Chelsea is a, is a non-athlete. She was, you know, we met in college, but she was on a couple teams in high school, but didn't do anything in college or anything like that. And she trains now, um, like I, I write her training after many years of her begging me to do her training. And I didn't want to be the guy that writes his wife's training. I finally am doing it now. And she just alternates basically between, um, like kind of, uh, weightlifting type day and like, uh, 20 seconds on uh, 60 seconds off type day with some hops and jumps and stuff like that. Works out 20, 30 minutes a day has her diet all cleaned up and, and super good. And she looks like a million bucks and she just pumped out a baby 10 months ago. So it's like, I never put her into that point, into that, 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 you know, that um, state that you see so many people working themselves into only to go drink a thousand beers and eat nachos and whatever. And then wonder why sure. they can't outwork their bad. Diet. Oh yeah. That's, so, that's sort of one of my, um, 
uh, yeah. passion project as a, as a PE teacher is, is getting kids to understand that we are not working out so that you can eat junk food. We are working out for the health of our, you know, tendons, ligaments, no. muscular system, cardiovascular system, um, you know, for a million right. good reasons, but in terms, uh, y- you know, in terms of our overall health, we really can't, um, can't, you can't approach it without talking about the nutrition piece. So appreciate that. So then my, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's so such a big, big piece of, of like, you know, just human optimization. It's like, if you want to feel, if you want to feel good, look good, um, be fun to be around all that. You, the yeah, di- for sure. So this, I, I got a couple rapid fire questions for you at the end, but my last uh, big question as it relates to physical education is, you know, you're getting a kid, your dream kid, you know, what does he come to he or she uh, come to you with physically. So what do you hope that his high school PE teachers and track coaches do in order to prepare this kid um, to be durable enough to train uh, consistently for five years and healthy enough um, mentally to handle the stress, you know, that comes with competition as well as, uh, you know, the understanding that, you know, sports, you know, end at a certain point and they need to be able to carry themselves into the rest of their life with that same healthy attitude. So, you know, what is, what does that, uh, male or female athlete look like when they, when they come to you? Uh, well, um, wow. So I would say that, uh, that's, there's this long list of things that I would hope for, but, to, to condense it and make it simple, I would hope that they had an understanding of how sleep and nutrition help with recovery and make it so that um, you could work harder, a little bit harder each day. I think that's, um, that's a big thing that uh, all coaches in high school need to be emphasizing and that I don't think we're doing a good enough job of because um, I very rarely get a kid in college that knows the importance right. of sleep and diet. Um, and not just diet from like, you know, a, a, like we were talking about before from a uh, body comp standpoint, but timing of, you know, um, carbohydrate consumption and protein consumption and, and how to fuel your body for, for training and all that sort of stuff. So that'd be number one, it'd be a, a just like a cursory understanding of how that all works. Um, for me personally, as a track coach, uh, I would hope that they would have yeah. some understanding of acceleration mechanics. That that would be first. That would be first on the list. If we're gonna, if you're gonna learn anything from a sprint mechanic standpoint, I would hope that the PE coach or track coach at some point would have gone through some basic um, training in understanding acceleration mechanics, how they apply to team sports, to track and field, right. to everything, um, to staying healthy. And how they also, uh, you know, I, I believe that if you can understand how to accelerate to 10 meters, you can understand how to run really well upright, how to sprint really well upright. And so, um, but that that is definitely not true in the opposite. I've seen people that can run pretty well upright that right. don't know how to accelerate, don't know how to get themselves there. So um, I would say that from a from a track standpoint, I would hope that they would, um, know how to accelerate, push themselves down the track 10, 20 meters. I can take it from there. But if right. they can at least understand the objective 
um, in acceleration. That would be huge. Uh, and then the last thing would be to keep an eye on, I guess, general strength and tendon strength uh, as the athlete is developing in high school. I think that um, there's there's a lot of like there's a lot of research to be done on um, tendon development and muscle development uh, in that age range and uh, what, what we could do better from a, a strength training standpoint. And I'm not a, I'm not a strength trainer. So, uh, you know, I, I have a, a basic understanding of how strength training works and, and all that, but it's not my area of expertise, but I think that that's an under-researched department that, um, someone could dig a really good coach could dig into and, and understand a little bit better. Um, but, uh, I, I think, I think what, that what about pretty mental, much covers it from a know, basic what, what kind standpoint. Of it's like, would you like them to have? Oh, uh, I mean, I would just have them, the, the athletes that I've had that have had the best success, especially early on are just the ones that come in, um, with a desire to learn, uh, what's, what, what to do next basically. And they don't have any, uh, you know, no hangups on, well, I did this in high school or, well, my coach said I should do this. I, I think the 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 best guys are the ones who who can come to practice every single day, including the first day or the you know the five hundredth day, and only be focused on you know what they need to do better. And and um, you know I think that you can you can develop that as a coach, and you can show like you know a PE coach in high school can have a, a great impact by showing a kid like, Hey, listen, like if you let me show you how to do this or teach you sure. how to do this, this sport is going to become more fun for you. And, um, and, and I think that relationship starts, starts happening early where they, they start understanding, um, you know, if I, if I just pay attention and, and learn a new skill, um, you know, learn how to, you know, do a, you know, better crossover in basketball and coach teaches me where to put my, where to shift my weight or how to push off here or there. I can go yeah, past and I think people that, and make I think, easy layups and score more I, points. I think the fun so piece is, the, is the, the, the other sport part becomes where, more fun. You know, the kids that I've seen that have done really well at high levels, um, genuinely enjoy what they're doing. So they're not doing it to impress, um, their, you know, their girlfriend or their boyfriend or their parents or coaches. Um, and they're certainly not doing it for a grade. Um, you know, I, I use the example of one of the, the wrestlers that I yeah. coach. Uh, he would wrestle 20 times a day if you let him. Uh, he'd wrestle in the parking lot on the way into the tournament and in the parking lot on the way out if you let him. And uh, he had a fun, yep. you know, he had a blast doing doing it. And he would listen to anything that you said because he was just, he just wanted to get better. And, um, uh, you know, that kid's, you know, the sky's the limit, yep. I think. He's a young kid. But I think the sky's the limit for him because, uh, boy, what he makes, uh, what he lacks in sort of genetic ability, uh, he's, you know, not that I know, have an insight into that, but it doesn't really matter because he's going to make up for, you know, with that work ethic that's really based on uh, having fun. Um, so anyway, not to put my spin on it, but uh, you had mentioned fun. So from a, you know, PE perspective, that's, that's sort of my take. Um, all right, a couple of rapid fire questions. So, you know, just, just a pause real quick. I want to do the rapid fire, but I also will say that the kid that has learned those skills and has found the thing that they're most passionate about and has had coaches that have, have guided him, um, him or her into 
uh, a style of training or competing or practice that's enjoyable and fun and, and, and have had coaches that have encouraged skill adaptation to make the sport a little bit easier or have made them have more success. And then they, their hunger for, you know, for success is stronger and all that. Those are almost always the kids that I send out the door uh, after college. Right. And I'm, and I'm thinking like, this kid's going to do awesome, you know, like in life and in everything else, like this, that, sure. that kid's going to, going to be just fine and um you know the 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 ones who um aren't like that and who need a bit more hand holding or who come to practice and you know drag into practice and slow throw their backpack down and ask what do we got today those are the kids that i am concerned about you know when i send them out the door like hey i, I really hope I, I know track wasn't it and whatever but like i hope you find the thing that's interesting to you but um no yeah no that's yeah well i don't said. know and, i don't know if that's a little uh, bit yeah, of a I tangent said but... that, uh, to your last question saying uh really is a metaphor for life and you know i think that's why we teach sports in the first place anyway so um, yeah so there we have it all right rapid yeah. fire time so you don't have to think too long about these just for fun what uh what job would you be doing if you weren't doing what you're doing now Wow, <laughs> I doing what I'm doing in now. your in your um, case coaching, right? In my case, coaching at all. I mean, I, probably teaching. Does that count as a yeah. as a backup? I mean, it's kind of like coaching too. Right I I can't find myself. I can't see myself doing anything besides like educating if, right. in some way. Uh, the the long pause there was indication enough. You're like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, I, I, I literally can't even imagine. Like, sell insurance? I don't know. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> sure. I think that there are people that are hardwired to sell insurance and just, they're awesome at it. And they get all yet. the same. They get, yeah, they get all the same benefits out of it that I get out of all coaching right. track. But Favorite anyway. specific lift or specific exercise? Oh, well, sure. does sprinting count? That's probably my number one favorite thing to all practice right. and do. Favorite place? Well, I mean, but besides right. pole vaulting, pole vaulting is is really number one. But I will say sprinting as like an exercise thing that everybody sprinting can sprinting that leads to a to a to a pole vault. All right, uh, right. favorite place you've competed or trained? <laughs> oh gosh, um, well, I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I would say that the, my favorite place that I have competed was probably in, in Jokerim, which is a small town in Germany that has a pole vault, um, pole vault competition each year that is just totally bonkers. It's a really small town in the South, uh, like the Bavarian region of Germany. And, um, it's, a, it's a tiny town. You stay in people's houses, um, instead of in a hotel and they throw at a really, really cool, pole vault party and everybody jumps really high and they have um they have a facility that's pole vault only it's like a soccer facility but then it turns into a pole vault facility for one day of the year um and the crowd is just unbelievable and um it's loud and and really fun and i've jumped well there um so that's there i jumped in the bird's nest in the olympic stadium in, in beijing which was really fun too but i didn't jump well so i can't use that as my number one uh and then to train, um, definitely this this indoor facility in, in Gothenburg in Sweden 
uh, it's the home training place of uh, a bunch of really, really good Swedish athletes of the last like 20 years. Uh, it's just this little, uh, from the outside, it looks like a hockey arena or something. It's like a metal looking building. Um, and like I said, it's in Gothenburg and I've been there to train a few times throughout the years. And uh, I really love being in Sweden and I love the coaches that are there. Um, and, and at the time I was training with a guy named Alaji Jang, who's a Swedish pole vaulter who's really amazing. So I, I always hold on to that, those couple trips that I did there. And, um, all right. Yeah. I'll volunteer the, the West gym as well. And, uh, the West Gym, obviously, the West Gym is the All best right. place actually to train in the right. in the whole so if world. If you don't know yeah. what the West Gym is, look it up. Wrestling reference, worth your time. All right, best single piece of advice you've gotten or received, uh, you've given or received in terms of improving your health, fitness, or performance. So, sort of a one sentence piece of advice. Um, to improve health, what fitness, was it again? or performance. Health, fitness, or performance. How you do, how you do anything right, is how you I do like everything. It. True or false? Uh, the best decathlete in the world is the best all-around athlete in the world. All right. True. Uh, all right. Well, that that concludes. That's an awesome uh, introduction. I think that's a great first uh, podcast, and it really um, sort of accomplished what I hoped um, to accomplish when I set out. You know, to to sort of get this whole thing rolling, uh, to look at PE. You know, with a little bit more of a discerning eye to to learn from what the best people are doing uh you know so hopefully we'll have you know coaches like yourself and parents and nutritionists and and strength and conditioning and and all the rest and and sort of make pe a relevant place where where it really can't impact you know the health and lives of you know so many millions of kids go through those programs every year so all right closing closing thoughts yeah resources or where people can find you uh, people can find me on social media. You just search my name. Um, and I just hope this is a vehicle to finally, uh, get rid of speed ladders All forever. Right. Get rid of speed ladders. That'll be a podcast number two. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening to the first episode of the Gym Class Strength Podcast. Head over to gymclassstrength.com for free lesson plans, free workouts, links to our social media, and articles and essays about physical education. Thanks again to Jeff for his time. We'll see you next time.